Good morning, everyone. Uh, this certainly isn't about me, but just by way of very brief introduction. My name is Chad Horton, and I'm a partner at McGilvery uh, Injury and Insurance Law. And I'm here today and for the next couple of days to help facilitate this process and help these witnesses tell their stories. Dr. Milburn. Sitting in front of a lawyer is a place a doctor never wants to be. <laughs> Here we go. Before we get into the details of your examination, can you kindly provide the commission uh, with an overview of your education, training, and experience? Sure. So my name is, my name is Chris Milburn. I'm a native Nova Scotian. I for uh, I graduated in 1999. I've been a full-time Emerge doc, uh, being involved with family medicine, but uh, also importantly for the purposes of this, I've been quite involved with public health um, in several roles, both on several local committees, local initiatives over many years. I was a member and then head of the Canadian Medical Association Committee on Healthcare and Promotion, which is one of their core committees that dealt with public health issues. I was a longtime member and then the uh, chairman for the uh, Doctors Nova Scotia Public Health Issues Committee. So I have a foot in public health and a foot in frontline medicine. Now, you may have somewhat answered this question already, um, but what are your primary, primary areas of interest and involvement in medicine? Yeah, so... Uh, Emergency medicine and, and public health are probably at the very opposite poles. Public health deals with um, populations and big picture recommendations, what's best for this population. Emergency medicine is the most focused part of medicine. It's one patient, one problem at one instant of time. So um, I have a real interest in both of those, uh, which are in a way polar opposites, but they really do should, they really should connect. And what was your specific role in early 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic? So uh, when the pandemic began, I was, uh, from the public health point of view, I was still the chair of the Public Health Issues Committee for Doctors Nova Scotia, but I was also uh, uh, the chief of emergency medicine for Eastern Nova Scotia, for the, the Eastern Zone of Nova Scotia Health Authority. So I oversaw, I had a, a kind of a, a high level um, oversight role on 13 different uh, emergency room and urgent care centers from Antigonish right up to the tip of uh, Northern Cape Breton. Can you explain your professional responsibilities as the emergency room chief of the Eastern Zone? Uh, yeah, so I was I, I was responsible for making sure that we had a coherent approach to uh, to providing emergency care for that zone, and so that you, you can imagine that it was kind of a broad role. And so uh, when COVID hit. My role was to take all these new policies and procedures and to make sure that um, our our staff at all the different sites was uh, aware of what the approach was going to be, what was the safest and best, best approach to see a patient who might be infected with COVID. Um, so I had, uh, you know, I was really kind of taking the policies and procedures that were being developed at a high level and trying to uh, get our staff on the front lines up to speed. Okay. So setting aside your duties as, as chief of emergency, um, but within your 
role as an emergency room physician, uh, and I appreciate this number likely varies, but on average, how many patients could you expect to treat in the run of a regular week? Yeah, so to some degree, my schedule is flexible, but in a full week where I might do, say, five shifts, I could see up to 150 patients a week. So I was more or less functioning as a full-time eMERGE doc and doing the chief job as a, sort of in my spare time, we'll say. That sounds busy. Uh, yeah, I'm not, never bored. So can you, can, can you confirm for the record, um, Dr. Milburn, that you've actually provided me with a copy of your CV? Y yes, I, I have given you my CV. Okay, and I'll make, we'll make that available to the commission. So based on your education, training, experience, and any clinical, clinical literature that you had read or were familiar with, uh, what was your understanding of the danger posed to public health by COVID-19? Um, yeah, uh, I'll try to give you a brief answer. So when, when COVID first reared its spiky head in China, there was a lot of, a lot of fear. I was one of the ones who was afraid because we have a very, uh, unstable and fractured emergency system already with a lot of uh, worker shortages. So we were struggling to provide care. And when we kind of looked at, um, uh, you know, first China and then Italy and then New York City, we were quite afraid of what might come. Um, at first, we thought, you know, we were given the idea that there's an extremely high mortality rate and that, you know, every quote unquote, everyone was at risk. Uh, that was actually a quote from our, our, our premier at one point. But we very quickly in the first month or two, the data started to come out. The average age of death was, you know, 80 or more than 80 in uh, Italy. It, it became clear pretty quickly that this it was very what we call the risk age stratified. And it turns out that for a young, healthy person, the risk is maybe somewhere around one five thousandth to one ten thousandth of the risk for an elderly, unwell person. So we by the summer certainly by the June or July of 2020, that risk age stratification of risk was becoming apparent. Okay. Now, would you have been in a position in your role as an emergency doctor in chief to personally observe the impact of both the COVID-19 illness and also the impact of COVID policy measures on Nova Scotians in your area of responsibility being the Eastern Zone? Yeah, for sure. So we, you know, we had sick COVID patients, um, mostly, almost entirely elderly or what we call comorbid. And that was an issue. But I believe in my, in my experience, it pales in comparison to the issues that I saw both as as chief, you know, secondhand, but also just personally working as a frontline doc, uh, the the impact that things like hospital shutdowns had. Like, for instance, I can rhyme off several patients who died of cancers that I believe they didn't need to die of because their care was delayed. Um, I had patients who were scheduled for joint replacements who were living in chronic pain and suddenly saw the wait list stretch out over the horizon for them. Um, I saw, I, I look after a nursing home for the last few years and I saw those patients locked down. I saw patients in nursing homes give, give up, stop eating and die because they were essentially prisoners and couldn't see family. You know, I watched, I watched family 
outside windows, crying, looking at patients inside. So I saw these terrible impacts of COVID policy and they were much more uh, prevalent. They were a much bigger issue than the impacts of actual COVID. So, can you just can you just repeat your conclusion again? Uh, what what you just said at the end? You're saying. Yeah, I think we there's a lot of talk <clears throat> on the impacts of COVID. When we hear this in the mainstream news or we hear politicians or bureaucrats talking about it, they talk about how COVID impacted us in the last few years. But um, although I did see some very, very elderly, very unwell people die after they got COVID, I didn't really see those. I didn't really see it shortening lifespans, but I saw major impacts on the population from COVID policy. So I, I'd like to distinguish those. There's impacts of COVID policy, which I think were huge. There's impacts of COVID, which I think were relatively small if you parse them out. So you're talking about impacts of COVID policy, or, or you spoke about that partially. I want to explore that a little bit. Now, you described numerous observations you made over a period of time. During the relevant time that you were just discussing, did you look for answers regarding either the reasoning or the data supporting the policy decisions behind the scenarios that you've just described to us? I did. Um, so as chief of eMERGE, I, nurses I work with and a handful of physicians uh, were concerned with policies, for instance, universal masking policy. Was that really necessary? Was it justified? It was extremely uncomfortable for nurses. And it, these policies were made by somebody who sat behind their own desk in Halifax and never had to wear a mask. So it was easy for them to make policy. Um, when I asked for the justification, what I ended up uh, getting back was either nothing in most cases, or when I did get back answers, the answer was, well, our committee met and we decided. So I was never provided with justification. Here are the papers. Here are the minutes from the meetings. The committee that decided these things was uh, in camera. It was not, it, we were not privy to what was happening. They'd never asked for our feedback on policies. They never asked for uh, what we saw as the impact of those policies. How do you see this playing out? Is this good or bad? So uh, we, we, we did, uh, and I say we because as a group, a group of doctors behind the scenes, we sent several emails to Dr. Strang to ask for things like, for instance, what's the justification behind recommending vaccinating children? The recommendations in Nova Scotia seem to actually go against the recommendations of NACI. Um, and we, we asked, we sent formal letters. I sent informal emails and the best I ever got back was because our committee decided. Just, just one little point for, for the people watching at home or for members of the audience. When you say most of the meetings were in camera, what does that mean? Uh, it means we, they were private. They involved politicians, the health minister, the premier. They involved some handpicked bureaucrats, but physicians like me were not asked to be part of it. We were not privy to the notes. We were not privy to the data that was used. That Those were private, confidential meetings. 
And did you specifically ask for the notes or the minutes coming out of those meetings? Um, I specifically asked how those decisions were made. Could they please give me the justification? And again, I either got nothing or our committee decided, and that's why. Do you, do you have any more specific recollection of what sort of responses you got to those inquiries? Um, no, I not much recollection because the usual reply was none. Uh, emails would go off and they would disappear into a black hole and I would never hear back. They were mostly ignored. Oh, and so that, that includes recently too. I've still been asking and they're still ignored and sucked into the black hole. Oh, so no, <clears throat> excuse me. So no response whatsoever. No response was the most common response. And what was your perception about, about what was going on there? Well, I think my, my perception was very much like most people who most people who attempted to get answers. And the perception is that these decisions are, uh, there's a saying, when you mix politics with science, you end up with politics. And these committees were made up, they did have, they did have, uh, People like Dr. Strang and some upper-level doctor bureaucrats on them, but the, the decisions I do not believe were—I uh, don't believe they were scientifically based. I think they were politically based, and that's why we couldn't get an answer back because it was a political decision made for a certain appearance rather than, uh, you know, following the science, so to speak. So, myself as a Nova Scotian who occasionally listens to the radio. I do have some firsthand awareness of the fact that you had been in the media and had some involvement. Um, but can you briefly describe your media involvement over the years? Yeah, I, I've always been an outspoken guy. I'm willing to say my views in public and to try to back them up. Um, and so I've, I was asked for, for many years, I've appeared um, on, uh, I've, I've done interviews on CBC Radio, including I was asked to be part of this thing called the Issue Panel, which is, uh, a regular uh, feature of CBC Information Morning in Cape Breton where they get three people on, they throw out an issue that's topical in the news, the three people debate it and argue it. It's kind of off the cuff. I had been on this for, for a number of years. I, I can't tell you exactly how many times, but every few months I get asked to be on. And the typical uh, way that would happen was they'd ask me, could I be on next Thursday? Yes. And then a few days before or just the day before I get an email saying, here's going to be the topics. Because of my schedule, I would typically look at that, like the, the time that this particular time that we're about to discuss, I, I looked at the email at midnight and I was to be on at 7.30. And I noticed that the topic was COVID policy. And I kind of thought, well, this is bound to be controversial, but I felt uh, by that time, I, I had tried to get answers from within the system, and I just felt I felt that the public needed to know that there were physicians, nurses, other people out there who had an inside view on the system but didn't agree with the policies because there was, a, a, I believe, a real attempt to make it look like all of the doctors were on side. And I, I, I decided to go ahead and speak my views I made it clear that I was not speaking for NSH. I was speaking as as my own self. And uh, but I felt people needed to know there was another side to this, and some doctors felt differently. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So when was your and, and I understand from your evidence that you were on the issue panel by invitation a number of times over mm -hmm. a period of time. When is the last time you appeared on the issue panel? 
So yeah, so this would be in June of 2021. The uh, the move to vaccinate every human being in Canada was well in uh, well, well in full. It was in full swing. And uh, I was I was asked to be on. Like I say, I looked at the email the night before. The issues that came up that day were um, number one. Uh, the schools had just been put back in. They had been out for quite some time. They were just put back in. I was asked what I thought of them going back in. And what I said was, I don't think they should ever have been out. I think there was clear evidence that it was bad for kids to be out of school. Kids were not at risk from COVID, uh, nor were they vectors. So I don't think they ever should have been out. So that I, I kind of contradicted public health's statements in that way. Um, number two, I was asked what I thought of, uh, potential vaccine passports because they were just kind of on the horizon at that point. I said, number one, I think they're unconstitutional. And I also made the point that these vaccines were brand new. And by definition, we did not know long-term side effects. That's not an opinion. That was just truth. And the third thing I said that turned out to be controversial was, um, that I thought <clears throat> public health, public health's role should be advisory, not a rulemaking body because they were unaccountable and that when we gave them this much power that some people enjoyed that amount of power and history showed uh, shows us that people who are given power only give it up reluctantly. So I made those points and that was the last time I was ever asked to be on the issue panel. <laughs> <laughs> And more specifically, when when was that? What was the date? Yeah, so I can kind of tell you how things played out. So th that was on a Thursday morning. Um, I got in numerous... What, what, what month in year? Uh, so sorry, early June 2021. I can't tell you exactly the date, okay. but it, it was a Thursday morning. I got tons of, actually tons of supportive emails through the next couple of days. And then on Saturday, I got an email from friends saying, did you hear that Strang got ambushed at a press conference? And I, I looked it up and, and saw the clip and uh, Tim Bousquet of the Halifax Examiner had ambushed Dr. Strang with the questions. He said, did you hear that Milburn told people not to get vaccinated and basically said you were power hungry? So, you know, it was, it was a mischaracterization of what I said. And so I actually, I've, I've had, I've had, uh, what would you say, very reasonable communications with Dr. Strang in the past. So I sent him an email basically saying, look, I, I saw that you were ambushed. I didn't say it that way. I'd love to talk to you. Here's my cell number. So I, I reached out. Uh, I later that day saw his reply, which was uh, Milburn should stick to emergency medicine and, and I'll take care of public health. And basically accused me of not not, not being qualified to speak because I wasn't an expert like him. Um, so I didn't get a reply back from the email. So as I described it, I felt the icy winds blowing. And on the Tuesday morning, I got a call while I was at work from Dr. Don Bryan, the head of the Eastern Zone, who we had a long conversation. He explained to me that I had created vaccine hesitancy, that I, as head of Emerge, it wasn't appropriate for me to ever criticize public health. Um, that, um, it, you know, I had sort of undermined the NSHA and I was told that I would be, uh, that I was no longer head of Emerge as of that point. Um, I asked Dr. Bryan, the one thing I asked him, we, we, he and I have, have been colleagues for years. I said, I'm fine with all that if that's your decision. I obviously can't argue it, but please put this all in a memo, what you've told me. 
uh, please be public with it. I am going to be asked why I was fired. I would like you guys to state why I was fired because you're the ones firing me. Um, a, more than a week went by. I think he probably went to the lawyers of the NSHA and what the statement that came out said, Dr. Milburn is no longer head of Emerge. Thanks very much for your service. So they never publicly said all of the things that Dr. Bryan told me in a 25, 30 minute conversation, creating vaccine hesitancy, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons I was fired, they would not put in writing. Is, are you, do you have any awareness of any record of that conversation? N no, uh, I, I had, a, like I say, a long uh, time. I actually worked in the same office as Dr. Brian and part, part of my work. We had a great, uh, we had a great relationship for many years. So I trusted him. I, you know, looking back at it, I guess you should always record these things, trust no one. Uh, but I kind of, ex I, I really innocently thought that he would actually be honest and open and actually say what he's told me publicly. And I was very wrong. So, I just want to unpack a little bit of what you said there. And, and what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, one of their concerns that was that you were promoting vaccine hesitancy. Was anything communicated to you with respect to what specific statement you made that could be construed as promoting vaccine hesitancy? Uh, yes, during the conversation. So one of the things that people should note and might be surprised, I'm vaccinated myself. Uh, I got to, I got the first two vaccines because we were told at that time, as a frontline staff, I work with the most critically ill and comorbid and elderly people there are in our community there. I'm face to face with them on a regular basis. I was told that by being vaccinated, I would, pre I would prevent or at least greatly lower my odds of passing it on. So I was vaccinated myself. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vaccinated anti-vaxxer. Um, but <laughs> the, um, the, in terms of promoting vaccine hesitancy, my my great sin was in saying that this was a new vaccine and the side effects, especially the long-term side effects, were not well spelled out. So we, by definition, we couldn't develop a risk-benefit ratio uh, to because whenever I speak to a patient about getting any treatment, be it a vaccine or something else, I always talk about here's here's the benefits to you, here's the risks to you. The patient always makes the final decision, but I could say based on this, I would recommend it or I wouldn't. I didn't have that information at that point. I couldn't advise somebody this vaccine is more benefit than risk to you. I only got it myself. I didn't know the risk benefit ratio, but I was willing to take the chance because I thought it would prevent me from passing it on to my patients. I did it as a safety thing for my patients, but I wouldn't have recommended it to anyone else at that point with the dearth of evidence. But that was what I did was I, uh, from the, Dr. Brian's point of view, was I created vaccine hesitancy by daring to say that the vaccine might have side effects that we don't know about. Now, I understand from the commencement of your testimony that you've been involved, you've been a practicing physician for more than 20 years. Um, I understand from your testimony that uh, you have significant emergency room experience and you also advise that you had involvement in public health mm -hmm. or at least a, a, a strong interest in public health. Great interest for over 20 years, yep, and so involvement. Within the scope of your education, training, and experience, do you have any knowledge or is there or any um, perspective that you're aware of within the medical realm that that statement that we do not have long-term safety data was incorrect. 
It, it turns out it was very correct. The first data on myocarditis was coming out at that time, but it wasn't public. It turns out we've had, uh, I believe it's over 80 cases in Nova Scotia alone. That's the government data, not mine. Um, so, and, and, and now if you look at the Nova Scotia government website, they've admitted to a host of other side effects, which were not, uh, not apparent at that time and certainly not, uh, told to patients at that time when they were choosing to be vaccinated or, or, you know, being coerced to be vaccinated, they were not told about these potential side effects. So I stand by my statement. It's just become more and more true over time. So it was, was it your understanding at that time, uh, to put it directly, that you were stating an objective fact? It, it, yeah, it just, what I said, we don't know long-term side effects was just a fact because that's just true with a new vaccine. It, it's not an opinion. It's not, that's Milburn's take on it. That is just uh, a fact like the the sky is blue. So at any point during your career as an emergency physician or chief in Nova Scotia, did you ever sign any agreement or contract or were you ever told that there were restrictions on the opinions you could express either as a private citizen or within your capacity as a doctor? No, absolutely not. I was always, uh, I always labored under the impression that I had the same rights to free speech as anyone else in Canada. Um, I was always extremely careful because I not only was on the issue panel, but I got interviewed about other things on the radio or in the newspaper. And I always made it, I always took great pains to say, this is my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for the health authority. I made that very clear. Um, so I, I, I never signed anything to say that I would agree to agree with all my colleagues or agree to agree with Dr. Strang or uh, not criticize um, my profession. A matter of fact, I think it's essential that we physicians do. Um, you know, I, I was very critical of my profession during the our, our complicity in the opioid crisis. And thank God we were allowed to speak out and we've somewhat turned that around. Uh, it, it just, it's just essential for docs to be able to speak out. And we have, no, absolutely. I never signed anything, was never told that I wasn't allowed to speak. Okay. And, and from your earlier testimony, I understand that you had issued correspondence, or I think as you described it, you were seeking answers to the reasoning behind various policy decisions, correct? Correct. Okay. And when you did that, um, did you, did you express any of your personal concerns, whether, whether in your capacity as a private citizen or as a medical professional, did you express any concerns about the policies that were being implemented in Nova Scotia? Yeah, I, absolutely. So I had concerns, like I say, that the masking policy is, uh, really, uh, decreases job satisfaction. It makes retention difficult. Uh, the school closure policies are, were very destructive for, uh, children. Uh, I expressed these both to some degree publicly, but behind the scenes, I expressed these over, over and over numerous concerns I had. Okay. And was it your understanding that your termination was, was specifically related to the comments you made on the uh, on on the uh, CBC program. It, it absolutely was. Dr. Bryan made that very clear to me on the call. That as a matter of fact, I had had a very good performance review just several weeks before with Dr. Bryan, and then I appeared on the radio, and then I was told that because of what I said on the radio, I was being terminated. Okay. So prior to your termination, uh, after you had expressed concerns internally and asked questions about policies, did any 
anyone professionally ever approach you and suggest that those views were unacceptable, that you had unacceptable views? Uh, sorry, after I spoke out? No, or no. Before? But prior to your termination? No, no. no I was never... I. Definitely, uh, I, I understood that some doctors disagreed with me and some agreed with me, but I was never told that I wasn't allowed to have those views or not allowed to express them. No. So I guess what was, was your first awareness uh, that your, your, uh, your, your expressions were problematic at that termination meeting? Uh, yes, but I will say that, you know, I'm, I'm far from innocent to these things. So I had watched the, I knew the lay of the land. Um, I had watched other doctors be <clears throat> dragged through the mud and walk over the hot coals because of speaking out with their views. So I knew when I said those views, I knew they were potentially, uh, controversial and would potentially um, make some people angry at me. Did I expect to be fired as chief of VR? I did not. I didn't think it would go that far, uh, even though I knew that it would ruffle some feathers. Okay. Now, <clears throat> you indicated previously, and, and we didn't explore this, but you indicated that after your appearance on that particular CBC program in June of 2021, you had said that you had received supportive emails. Can you, can you, explain what you mean by that can you elaborate please yeah from the, from the, i was on the radio at 7 30 a.m and <clears throat> by the time i first checked my well i got started to get texts and then by the time i first checked my email a couple hours later i had a couple of dozen emails in my inbox and within a f within a week i i had i would say at least a couple of hundred emails um people supporting me uh, when I, after I got fired and that came out, um, I know for a fact that, uh, the NSHA and Dr. Bryan specifically received a lot of, uh, angry emails, uh, sort of supporting me and supporting my right for free speech. So I know, I know there was a lot of, uh, a lot of support on my side. There were, there were detractors too. A Twitter mob came after me and organized to launch a formal complaint about me. Um, that, that was all sort of public on Twitter. So there were, there were both sides, but I did receive a lot of support. A formal complaint on the basis of what? Um, it, that's all, you know, you can read about that on Twitter. I, for various reasons, I'm not allowed to talk about that, but you can, you can see that okay. play out on Twitter. Yeah. So after you were terminated, do you, as, as chief of emergency, do you have, do you know if and when uh, that position has been filled. Uh, yeah, my my understanding the it was a very busy job. Uh, it was it, it, theoretically it was I was paid as a point two position, but it was much more than that. So the job was there's two people filling that role now, one for one part of the zone, one for the other. Okay. So am I understanding correctly that your responsibilities were delegated to two of your colleagues? Correct. Not a new hire. Uh, not a new hire. Okay. And I believe you testified earlier this morning that in your capacity as an emergency room physician, you would treat, uh, or you could expect to treat approximately 150 patients per week. Was that that, that'd, that'd be a big week. That'd be sort of the maximum I'd see in a week, but yeah, okay. we do, uh, average week would be definitely over a hundred. Yeah. Okay. Average over a hundred. And where are you practicing now and in what capacity? Uh, I am an old-fashioned rural family doctor now. I work in the small 
uh, village of Canso in a tiny hospital there. And I do everything from palliative care house calls to I mind the ER and whatever comes in and I do family practice and I take a mole off if you need it. So I'm, I'm an old fashioned country doctor. <laughs> I expect that community appreciates you. Um, so after leaving your previous role as an emergency room physician, wherein you would see between 100 and 150 patients per week, do you know uh, if and when the vacancy that that would have created has since been filled? Um, well, Nova Scotia Health is constantly recruiting. Since since I left that position, I've had colleagues retire. I've had there's been new hires there. So the answer is like they don't specifically advertise my one position and try to fill that one position. It doesn't work that way. We have a sort of a stable of doctors. And when I when I stopped working in in at the regional site as an eMERGE doc, it just meant that you know twelve. 14 shifts per month were unfilled and the other docs had to step up and take more shifts on. So it, it made things busier for everyone else. And that does affect the overall picture because these are doctors who might have picked up shifts uh, that would have been empty in, an, or in a rural eMERGE, let's say, but now they're doing more shifts in Sydney. So it does have an impact on the overall lay of the land in terms of staffing. Yeah. Dr. Milburn. Broadly speaking, what motivated you to come in and speak with us today as part of this process? Um, yeah, it, it, there's a whole there's a whole other side to COVID out there that has not been well represented in the mainstream media, in discussions, in uh, statements from our chief medical officers of health or our premiers. Uh, there's many, many Canadians who feel that these policies were overreach, uh, probably unconstitutional in many ways, and that they were destructive and harmful. That, that side of the debate has not been well represented. And I just want to be a part of getting that message out there that there is another side. I don't think I'm always right. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on some things, but we, we have to have the debate. You know, um, uh, the science is, uh, the science is about debate and arguing and, uh, you know, uh, Einstein said science can only flourish in an atmosphere of free speech. So that, that's why I'm here. Final question. Based on what you just said, as you've gone through this process, do you have uh, any awareness of or have you had involvement? Let me ask this another way. As you've gone through this process, are you aware of any like-minded physicians practicing in Nova Scotia who share the concerns that you expressed today? There are many. There's a saying, um, punish one, silence a thousand. And there are a lot of doctors behind the scenes, a lot of doctors and nurses who would love to speak out. 
Um, I know there's some doctors who wanted to testify here, but were still uncomfortable to do so. Um, doctors are kind of, doctors and nurses were kind of held hostage because if we lose our, if we lose our position, it impacts, we can't care for our patients. And when it comes right down to it, doctors and nurses want to care for their patients. So the, this threat of job loss, uh, you know, or, or losing our licenses or whatnot is used, basically our love of our patients and our, our desire to care is actually used against us here. And it works well. I can tell you there are many, many doctors who'd like to speak out, many, many nurses who'd like to speak out, many other healthcare workers, and, and they don't, still don't feel comfortable even though we're in 2023. Dr. Milburn, thank you for coming in and answering these questions today. Thanks for having me. Don't leave. I can assure you my wife swears at me enough. <laughs> <laughs> Do you affirm that what you have told the Commission of Inquiry? Oh. <laughs> Dr. Milburn, do you affirm that what you have told the Commission of Inquiry is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Absolutely. Thank you. And one final point. Um, we will, uh, for the, the Commission's consideration, as Dr. Milburn indicated, he's provided me with a copy of his CV. We will forward that to you for your consideration. And also two news articles, uh, uh, a CTV article, uh, Cape Breton doctor removed as head of emergency medicine for the Eastern Zone and another article by Saltwire, Dr. Chris Milburn wants health authority to tell public reason for firing. Um, we will put those in for the, the commission's consideration, but they are a matter of public record. Thank you, Dr. Milburn. Dr. Milburn, I have two, I want to ask you two clarifying questions. The first one is about the uh, first impression or reading that you had about the potential risk associated with the vaccine, and yet that you decided to take the vaccine, considering that this could be the right thing to do, given that you were facing vulnerable people and didn't want to put them in danger. Mm -hmm. So my question is, You've been working in public health, so you probably have notion about epidemiology and all of these mm -hmm. things that would actually support that kind of decision based on mm -hmm. anything you had available. So my question is, what was your assessment at the time mm -hmm. in terms of the potential for these vaccines to actually uh, benefit in stopping or reducing transmission? Um, I, 
I know, and I, so I'm not a vaccinologist, but I know enough about vaccines to know there's certain vac, there's certain uh, things like smallpox and measles which are, are, don't mutate. Uh, so the vaccines against them work very well. So we don't have smallpox now because we have a smallpox vaccine and we eliminated smallpox. There's other things like the flu. We've had flu shots for 25 years and we still have the flu. I knew that COVID fell more into the realm of of the flu. Um, but I, I think at the time when the vaccines first came out, we were still learning a lot about COVID. So I wasn't sure, is this going to be more like measles or more like the flu? Uh, the initial data, which I now uh, I look at a very different way, let's say I don't trust it much, but the initial data seemed to say that it did decrease your odds of contracting COVID and therefore passing COVID on by, by a lot. So I again, I, I had assessed my own risk by January of February of 2021, when I got vaccinated, I assessed my own risk as being low. So I didn't get vaccinated for me. I didn't think I needed it. I thought I would do fine with COVID being um, skinny and relatively healthy. But uh, I, I got it because I thought it would reduce the uh, the odds of passing it on. Obviously, the, the data was very, it, the data was in its infancy at that point. So I knew that 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 wasn't a sure thing, but I, I went into it knowing that. And I was fine with taking that risk on myself but I was not fine with pushing that risk on anyone else. Okay. okay, the other question is more on, I'm asking about your opinion. Uh, you, you mentioned that even today in 2023, a lot of people in the, in the medical field, uh, practicing in hospital and nurses and so on are still reluctant to raise any issue they might have about past or even current policies. Uh, based on your experience in, in this area, what would be your best guess of why is it that people are still locked and what would it take to unlock <clears throat> so, their speak? Yes, in um, I'm, I'm going to go by memory, but I believe it was in uh, 2021, our, uh, every physician in Nova Scotia got an email from the college saying, your duty is to support all public health policies. Uh, it, so far, we have not had any problem with anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers. They actually use those words in the email to us. And we appreciate your compliance. And they talked about the need for unanimity. So these, this, the, the college is the body that gives us our license or can take it away. Hmm. So it's not just physicians feeling like they might get in trouble. It's the college saying, you will agree with public health. You will be unanimous. You will not speak out against masks. You will not speak out against vaccines. So there's very good and, and logical reason. It's not just a feeling, but it's actually a dictum from, from colleges. that, And that's happened across Canada. It's not just in Nova Scotia. So uh, there's still a lot of fear out there. And, and as I say, we're three years into this and there's many doctors who may share my opinions or, or com either completely or at least some of them and would not be willing to go on the record with it. I would say the, the great majority are not willing to be on the record. So if I understand what you're saying is that until such a time where the College of Physicians would actually remove that kind of directive, mm -hmm people will maintain their silence. Correct. And I'm actually, I've, I'm actually uh, in the process of kind of speaking with the college behind the scenes to say, I, I think they should walk back some of that now. For instance, the Cochrane collaboration has said that masks do not 
work. Mass policies do not work. Are we now allowed to criticize them, given that the Cochrane collaboration has said they don't work? Are we allowed to state that? And so I, I'm pushing back, but I think I do think we need to. Uh, uh, yeah, we we need to keep working on this because uh, physicians are still in fear of speaking their opinion. Yeah. Thank you.